That's good. All right, let's dive into our series. Pardon me. Where we're working through the book of Romans backwards, uh, reading Romans backwards. And in this series, we, we started, we did four weeks where we worked from the end of the book. Paul's uh, letter to the Romans started at verse, or chapter 16. We worked our way back to chapter 9, which was week before last. Now, so we've worked our way to the middle, and now we're going to jump to the beginning and work our way back to the middle again. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 today. If you're using one of these Bibles from the back, it's uh, page 911. And um, so I got to tell you, when it comes to the Bible, it's hard for me to put into words and express, um, you know, like strongly enough how much I love the Bible, how much I love the words that are in this book and how, how encouraging they are to me, how exciting they are to me, how, like... Like, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor, so I, like I've told you guys before, but some of my first memories are, are literally church. And, and so the Bible has been a constant presence in my life, always, always, right? And, and I, I've spent a lifetime reading it, being taught it, uh, studying it. I went to a, a, a Bible college and, and learned more about it there. I've continued to learn more about it over the years. And I love that um, this book never comes up empty. Like every time I go to it to study, there's something brand new. There's something, like Phil will tell you, I'll be like, man, I was reading this the other day. I just noticed this thing. I've never even noticed that before. And, and can you believe that? And we're just, you know, I, I love sharing that stuff because it's, it's exciting to me because I'm 47 years old. And I've been reading the same book for 47 years, and it's new every time I get into it and, and take a little deeper dive. And I, I don't know, there's just something about it that's so, so powerful. I love it so much. And I've told, talked to you before about how <clears throat> as much as I love this book, and I, and I do love it, and I take my role, like in, in the New Testament, um, when, you know, when the church was first, first started forming, we've talked about how before, but how... The day one of church life in the New Testament, it was a megachurch. It went from 120 to 3,000 in one day, right? It started out as a megachurch. And you had these 12 disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is no longer around. You had these 12 disciples of Jesus who are try- doing the best they can to pastor these 3,000 people or so that's growing every single day. And it's getting complex. I can't imagine, you know, like, if... If, uh, you know, God blessed in such a way that we grew to 3,000 this week, if that happened, like, first of all, we'd be calling some meetings <clears throat> because things just got super complex, right? Super, super complex. Like, Natalie would have to fill a truckload to bring all the bread in the house, and, and it, just, it just becomes a much bigger deal. We go from two services a Sunday to somehow trying to fit, uh, do the math, I don't know, a thousand services of Sunday, um, something like that. And so anyway, w- w- it would just be this weird, like so complex. And this is what the disciples were thrown into. And they didn't have other models to look to. They weren't going like, well, see what the church in Rome is doing. And maybe we can learn something. There was no church in Rome. It was just them. It was just them. Right. And so they're trying to figure it out as they go along. And they realized when they finally realized they couldn't do it all by themselves, that they needed help. And they started recruiting all these other people, these godly people to help them, uh, they set themselves aside, they set the, kind of the main pastors of the church aside 
primarily for the reading of God's word and for prayer. It was so important to them. They were like, we are getting so bogged down in the business of church and we're neglecting the main things and we can't lead these people if we're not close to God. If we, so, so I bring that up, that little story up to just say that like in my own relationship with the word, I try to take that really seriously as your pastor. I probably spend, no exaggeration, half my week just in the word at least 20 hours a week, and it's not always around the sermon. In fact, you'd be surprised how little time I spend on the sermon. Actually, some of you probably wouldn't be that surprised. No, you're like, no, it shows. And so, <laughs> no, just like in the study of the Word, just like getting into the Word and going deeper, just constantly, just con- it's, like, it's like cave diving. You know, it's just like constantly pushing yourself further, getting deeper, learning the roots, learning the connections, all that kind of stuff. And I'm constantly doing that. And hopefully what happens is out of the, overflow of that study, that deep dive into God's word, something halfway decent happens on a Sunday morning too, right? And so that's kind of where I go. But what I've found over the last uh, few years, and, and, and honestly, the time probably since we moved over here, since we took, you know, um, residence in this, this new facility, uh, my Bible study has been just sweeter at, than at any other point in my life. And there's a lot of factors. It has nothing to do with the building. But there's a lot of factors around that, primarily that you guys are doing the work of the church instead of just leaving it to the pastors, which is beautiful, and thank you. Thank you so much, right? And so, but my, my Bible study has just been, and what has happened over the last several years is that I have found, I'm in, I'm in this really, I was kind of briefly, I won't tell you the whole conversation, but I was briefly talking to Jamie about this this week, and like, I am in this place where the, the better my time in God's Word gets, the more I realize I don't know, or the more I realize I'd been taught incorrectly. And for somebody who's 47 years in the church now, that's a little bit scary ground to be. I would much rather be able to stand up here as your pastor and go, yeah, I'm 47 years in the Word Got it. Trust me. Right? That would be so, that would be, like, I don't know if that would make you feel comfortable, but it would make me feel so comfortable. It would just make me feel comfortable if I had that kind of confidence in my, and instead what I find is the deeper I dig, the more I realize, oh my gosh, there's layers to this and nuances to this that, that totally reshape my understanding of what is actually going on in some of these scriptures. And, and so, long story short, I want to read one of those passages to you today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Now, Romans chapter 1, because of the times that we live in, um, like what, I'm just going to, instead of me saying, I'm just going to put you guys on the spot, so you guys are the bad guys. Um, What's the number one hot button controversial issue in church world today? Somebody say it. Be brave. You're not brave. (laughs) It's the, homosexual, it's the homosexual question. It's the homosexual question. It's the number one most controversial. It's what we're judged by outside the world, all this kind of stuff. And, and Paul has a few verses, actually, that we're going to skip over today. Um, not, not, <laughs> not, not, because, not because I'm afraid to handle them, but because I, you'll understand why when I get to it. Okay, so Paul has a few verses in this chapter one today that... that uh, deal with that particular issue that have become these uh, tentpole verses for evangelicals and tentpole verses for people trying to prove their point and tentpole verses for, 
for, for people who, who desperately want to be right, right? And, and I understand why they've become those verses, and yet as I dive deep into this passage, and what uh, I'm going to take you guys, I'm going to turn my little flashlight on, and as we go into this day, hopefully you see some of the things that I'm talking about, that we have made these things tentpole verses, not because Scripture did, but because we needed a tentpole verse to respond to the times that we're in. And that is deadly territory to be in when you're, when you're kind of maneuvering through God's Word. When you try to start picking and choosing verses out of the Bible to match the times to, so that you can make yourself right, that's deadly, deadly territory to be in. We should always, and, and what I hope we can do today, approach God's Word for what it is actually saying, not what you need it to say. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's, let's dive into this. Like, to say that Romans chapter 1 is somehow about condemning homosexuality is, would be like trying to say that the Godfather is about weddings. <laughs> Some of you saw the Godfather, right? <laughs> right, if the rest of you should, because it's a great movie. But anyway, like, like it's, not, it's not a movie about weddings at all, at all, at all, at all. No, it's not about weddings. Even though it opens, it has a very long extended opening scene, scene around a wedding. If you just stop and read, like stop watching the movie after 20 or 30 minutes, and all you got was, wow, this is a great wedding movie, you missed the entire point of The Godfather. The entire point of it, right? And it's the same thing here. You cannot read chapter 1 of Romans and then stop. And we are so bad at this. We are so, because we have these short attention span uh, you know, we want to do our Bible studies for some of us. And, and, and listen, tiptoe into the waters however you can tiptoe into the waters, okay? I'm not trying to condemn anybody and your Bible study habits or whatever. If, if you've got time for one or two verses a day, then man, squeeze that time in and, 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 and at least do that. But I'm going to tell you that when you only take time for two verses at a time, um, you're going to have a very odd and weird reading of Scripture because sometimes, like Paul wrote these letters, like if somebody sent you a letter today, like say, like it doesn't happen anymore. I've got an aunt who still sends letters, <clears throat> and she writes these lengthy letters in cursive that um, she's getting old. And anyway, so <laughs> it is like she writes these long letters, and I love her for, I love the fact that she still writes letters. I really love it, you know, and she does, she, you know, we get a letter once in a great while from her. And, and, but if I stopped after one paragraph, one little section of, you know, two or three sentences of her letters, and was just like, oh, that's good. That's good, man. I felt like I heard from Aunt Wanda today. And I just put it down. Like, is that fair to what Aunt Wanda wrote me? <laughs> no, no, she's got a whole story she's trying to tell, a whole update, a whole, you know, whatever. Maybe she's encouraging me. Maybe she's whatever, whatever she's doing. Like, there's a whole purpose and flow to what she wrote me. And the same thing is true of these letters that Paul wrote. When you just pull out a verse or two verses or a paragraph out of something that is several pages long and you make that, okay, this is my life first today, I'm going to live by this verse, you might have pulled out the wrong part. He might have been setting you up to under, with that bit of information so that you would understand the important part later. Does that make sense? And this is what's happening in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 is where we get into the theology of this beautiful letter that we call Romans and, and the story of salvation, the story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. And it is amazing and is beautiful and all that stuff. But if you just hold chapter one up high and go, man, we can build a whole theology around this. 
you are missing the main point because chapter 1 is Paul's setup to slam not the world and not homosexuals, but actually you all in chapter 2. And so it's real convenient of you to hold up chapter 1 and go, look, I got a verse, and then, and then stop there when chapter 2 is like, I'll show you a verse. So get ready, the hammer's coming down on all of you fine Christians this morning. <laughs> Good, I love it. I love these messages, man. I love that I get paid to do this. Okay, let's do this. <clears throat> all right. So just a quick, quick recap. You guys know we talked about um, how, you know, by starting at the end of the letter, because Paul really deals with the people of the church he's writing to in the end of the letter, we know that He's writing a literal church in Rome with literal problems made up of very diverse peoples. Uh, Rome being a, a, you know, kind of the center of the world at that point uh, had a lot of people from a lot of different nations there and you had this really uh, tricky but beautiful mix of Jewish Christians and uh, Gentile or Roman uh, you know, citizenry Christians. And, and there was not only a struggle in just their cultural differences, there was a struggle in the way they just approached faith. You know, the Jewish Christians wanted you to hang on to all the Jewish laws and all the Jewish traditions and stuff too. And Paul's saying, no, 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 Christ set us free from all that, so don't make the Roman Christians, you know, don't hang that over their head because that's not their deal. The Roman Christians feel that freedom and kind of despise the Jewish Christians in the same church for for trying to hang that over their head. They also, there's also this weird um, uh, kind of racism that's going on in the city too, a lot of anti-Semitism that's starting to spring up in, in the city, and so that's mixing in the church. A lot of class differences, uh, you know, wealthy people and their slaves worshiping together, you know, that sort of thing. There's also men and women worshiping together and, and, and in a lot of ways being given um, um, equal standing at the foot of the cross so that um, you might have... A, a woman who God has given the gift, gift of prophecy, prophesying something to her husband, and the husband going, well, I'm the man of the house. Am I supposed to listen to you? And, but that did come from God, so how do we figure that? You know, so there's all this weird dynamic happening. And we talked about a few weeks ago how there's this dynamic that Paul draws out over and over of the strong and the weak, the strong being those who, who live in the freedom that, that Christ has given them, and, uh, and, and just embrace grace alone and faith alone and all that kind of stuff. And they really embrace that freedom. They, they're not bound by old law, old tradition, old customs. They're not bound by any of that. And then you got the weak, which Paul calls out. And they're the ones, predominantly Jewish uh, Christians, who are still kind of shackled by all that law and tradition and trying to figure that out. And so, so he gives us this dynamic of the weak and the strong. The, the reason it's so important for us to start back there so, to shape, because this as he's addressing the weak and strong back then, he's addressing the weak and strong even now at the beginning of this book where he lays out this beautiful theology that, that most of us, if you've been in church very long, know about, all right? So there's your background. Let's dive in. Romans chapter 1, we're going to go to verse 18. He's got all his introductions and hellos and howdies out of the way. <clears throat> verse 18. Here we go. This is the theology of Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So he starts off, he's like, here's the deal. Uh, This world is so wicked, and all these wicked people in this world have no excuse because it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around at this world and go, there's a God out there. I've, I've always said, to me, it takes almost no faith to believe that there is a God. It takes faith to name that God Jesus. All right, that's where, to me, that's where the faith. You can look around this world and just, just spend some time sitting in the grass. Spend some time, uh, you know, taking a hike or, 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 or just outside or, or experiencing the birth of a new baby or, or whatever. Experiencing life in general, and you can have some sort of sense that there's got to be something beyond beyond me, bigger than me, and behind all of this. It's too weird that this would just be an accident, right? It would be too unbelievable that this would just be an accident. And and this is what Paul is saying. There's no excuse because God has made himself plain to them, right? And he goes on, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. It's like that God offered himself to them and they traded what could have been so glorious for statues, for paintings, for carvings. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, <coughs> pardon me, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie <coughs> and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. God gave them over to their, so this is what God does. We feel, we have this, uh, uh, kind of warped sense of, you know, that if we screw up, then God will punish us, right? What Scripture actually tells us God does is not so much that he goes around just like all the sinners, you know, punishing all the sinners, zapping, zapping them with lightning or whatever. That's not what God does. Instead, God goes, okay, here's the deal. I've, I've made myself known to you. I love you. I've made a way for you to be in a relationship with me. But if you want to choose to go your own way, Choose to go your way. And then what he does is he allows us to go our own way. Has anybody ever experienced in life, this is probably what most of us have have experienced around sin in our lives. It's not that we get punished for sin. Our sin ends up being the punishment itself. You know what I'm talking about? Did your mama ever say to you, you made your bed, now lie in it? Yeah? Like sometimes our sin in itself just ends up, like God doesn't have to go around punishing. We punish ourselves. By, by wandering and going our, trying to do, do life on our own, and that we, we punish ourselves. And, and God just says, okay, I'm going to let you go that direction. I'll be here when you're ready to come back, right? Look at this next verse. Uh, we're going to skip down to verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. 
They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have, <coughs> they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Right? So he paints this dark picture of the evil of the world, right? Uh, and, and, and man, this is, the, this is the message. This is chapter one. This is the message that Christians love to harp on. Like, th- does this not sound like conversations you've been in with other Christians? We're like, man, this world is so jacked up. This world is so messed up. There's this, and you can, you can list all of them. Sometimes, sometimes it's things, things that you're listing or things that you're seeing on the news. Sometimes it's, it's thing, you know, whatever, but it, like you're just listing all the ways that this world is is evil and jacked up. Like, let me tell you, that conversation between God followers is not a new conversation. In fact, what we find is what Paul just wrote is kind of a mirror conversation of things that we find in other Jewish literature of the time. So you guys know that uh, in the Catholic Bible, they have a middle section of books that, that we don't include in our Bible and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with those books. In fact, they're honestly very helpful we just, somebody 15 years, 100 years ago decided, you know, we wouldn't have those in our Bible and they seemed less inspired or whatever, and so we leave them out of our Bible. They're worth reading, though, because they inform the thinking of those New Testament writers. The New Testament writers, those are the books that many of them were reading, actually. They were familiar with them. Those are the stories that oftentimes get referenced in some of their writings in the New Testament. They're super helpful. And what we find in some of those writings and some of the other writings of rabbis from around that time is that Paul here seems to almost almost be plagiarizing what some of those other writers around that time were also writing. In other words, Paul is taking the general complaints of Jews about the world, and he's kind of starting off his treaties with that. He's like, you guys know what I'm talking about because I know you've had these conversations before. I know you've read these guys. I know what, I know what, that is, what that's all about. You've heard these words. Now, I'm not saying Paul doesn't believe these words. Paul may feel... Like, like this is accurate and this is true and all that kind of stuff. But what Paul is doing is he's starting off his main argument by putting in their face an argument that they were familiar with, that they probably heard their parents talk about around holiday meals with their relatives, that, you know, that's just the condition of the world. This is what saved people, chosen people do. They compare themselves to those who aren't saved. They compare themselves to those who aren't chosen. And, they, and it becomes us versus them. If only they knew what I know, then they uh, would have the joy and the peace that I know that I have as well. Now, some of you, some of you are confused right now because you're like, okay, I thought that's what, all, what being a Christian was all about. And I want to tell you that there's a little more to it than that. Yes, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, yes, and, and solely because of Jesus Christ, we do get to experience life and joy and peace and the love of God in our lives, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it helps us get into days and out of days. It helps us, I mean, it just helps us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But God never meant for us to hold ourselves up as some sort of moral high ground for the world to just look at and go, oh, those perfect people. No, 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 that's not, that's not what, and, and, and so he's, throwing, he's starting off his letter, he's starting off his theology with this little bit of, you guys have heard this before, yeah, maybe it's true, maybe all this stuff is true, maybe the world does look like this, 
Maybe it is full of conceited people. Maybe it is full of angry people. Maybe it is full of people without love and without mercy and without all this kind of stuff with adulterers and slanderers and, and wicked, wicked people. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So the first point is this. Ready? The world is a mess, but that's not what this is about. Hang on to that. The world is a mess. It, abs- it, it doesn't, again, doesn't take a rocket science. Just look at this world and go, it's a mess, Right? But that's not what this is about. Paul doesn't show us that the world is a mess just to say, the world is a mess. He's got something else. Here it comes. You ready? Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Are you kidding me? It's not that Paul's point here is not how evil the world is. Paul's point is stop judging the world. That is above your pay grade. That's God's job. That's not your job. And here's the thing when you judge the world, you set up a standard that you also will be judged by. And the problem with that is. You do the same things. This is a hard truth. I gotta take a drink, hold on. This is a hard truth that we as a church have to come to grips with. I can tell you, as somebody who has been the confidant, the counselor of dozens, if not hundreds of people in this church over the last 12 years, There is very little difference in action in terms of sin between the people in this room and the people outside of this room. Very little difference. I don't say that in a judging way. I'm just just stating a fact. There is very little difference. You want to look at the, the world outside these doors and go, shame on them, they're adulterers. You got some sitting next to you right now. Shame on them, they're thieves. You got some sitting next to you right now. Shame on them, they're homosexual. Yep, right now. I, I, could, go, I could go through that entire list. Entire list. And I'm going to tell you, the church is made up as, from such as these. The church is, now, that is not me judging you or condemning you. I'm on that list too. I'll let you figure that out on your own. I'm not going to confess that right now. But (laughs) I'm on that list too. And Paul is like, before you get so high and mighty that you want to look outside these walls and judge everyone and talk about how wicked the world is, stop judging because you're going to be judged by the same standard as them. Stop it. Rather, live in the freedom of, that God has given you and hope for the best, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Live in the freedom that God has given you and know this is not about them. It's about what's happening right here. What does he say next? Right after that part I highlighted, he says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do, who do such things is based on truth. 
So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not not realizing that God's kindness is intended, here it is, to lead you to repentance? Like God is not kind to you just because he woke up one day and was like, I'm going to be kind to you, right? No, no, his kindness, his forgiveness, his patience with, all, with you is intended to lead you to repentance. And as we've talked about before, which is a, it's a big, in fact, I was in a church, uh, Meadow and I visited a church last Sunday in, in Denver, and a uh, beautiful group of people, that sort of thing, but at the end of the service, they led their congregation in a sinner's prayer that was all about telling God, I'm sorry. And it, uh, can I just tell you, I'm going to tell you again because I told you before, repentance is not about you telling God you're sorry. It's not. Who, who here has got somebody in your life, a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, that has come to you over and over with, I'm sorry, and you have got to the point with them that you're like, I don't want to hear I'm sorry. I'm tired of I'm sorry. Sorry does nothing. And this is what I tell my kids. I don't usually tell my wife this. I <laughs> what I tell my kids, though, is I don't care about your I'm sorry. I want to see you actually do the right thing. That's what I tell them. I don't care about I'm sorry. I want to see you do the right thing. Repentance is not going to God and go like, oh, God, I screwed up. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry means nothing. Repentance means I was going this way. I've changed my mind now, and I'm going to go this way. I see the error of my way. I see how this was wrong. I see this, how, how this might have been hurting God, how it might have been hurting people around me, whatever. I'm not going to be that guy anymore. And now I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do something different. There's going to actually become actual change that will come to my life. And God's kindness to you was not just so you could say some sort of magic prayer where you tell God, I'm sorry, and have, you know, have God over a barrel when it comes to judgment day. God's kindness to you is to bring you to a place to where you actually change. Where you're actually transformed from somebody who was dead to somebody who is resurrected now to a new life, a new creation. That's what God's kindness to you is all about. Keep going. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed... Listen to this. This is confusing to our theology. God will repay each person according to what they have done. (laughs) I love the Bible so much. I love it so much. Because just when you construct the most beautiful theology, you get into the Word and you go, oh, I forgot about that verse. forgot about that verse. Like it's so easy for us to just go, no, 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 it's all grace. Do whatever you want to. God's not concerned with what you're actually doing. Just to believe in him and, have, and, and receive his grace and receive his forgiveness. And, and we, this easy believism where we can just kind of come to God on our terms. And then Paul, the writer of all of that theology, throws in that God will repay each person according to what they have done. Well, I thought it wasn't about works. I thought my salvation wasn't about my works. I thought it was just about God's free grace and, his, and, and, and the faith and that sort of thing. Let's keep going then. 
To those who by persistence in doing good, those of us who keep trying to do good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human, for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, first for the weak, then for the strong, right? First for, he's like, he's like it, it, the message came to the Jew first, and so the, the judgment will be that way too, and be included, the, the, the Gentiles will be included. But glory, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Let's finish it out. Verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Talking to the, to the Roman citizens, those of you who grew up without the law and you're sinning, uh, you know, sinning against God and all that kind of stuff. The law makes no difference. You didn't have it in your life anyway, but you'll still be judged. You're still, you're still going to be judged by what you did. And all who sin under the law, all of you Jews, all of you, the, the wheat crowd or whatever, all of you Jews, sin under the law. You had the law. You sinned under that law. You're still going to be judged by that law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. This sounds like work salvation, Jeff. What's going on? Hold on. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not, oh, this is so good. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, these Gentiles, they didn't grow up under the Jewish law. They have no idea about what all, the, all those old Jewish scriptures. They don't know any of that stuff. They don't know about the traditions. They don't know about the circumcision. They don't know about who they're supposed to eat with and not supposed to eat with. They don't know about one holy day over the rest of the week or anything like that. They don't know any of that stuff. But when those people who grew up without the law that don't have the law, do by nature the things that are required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. In other words, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. What's Paul saying? He's like, this is not about that old law. It's about Jesus. And it's about what his Holy Spirit does in our lives. Some of you come into this room and you're interested in a relationship with Jesus, but you're like, man, I don't know the Bible enough. I don't know. Like there's some, that Old Testament is so confusing. And Paul here is saying, you don't need that law. You don't need that old tradition. You don't need that old knowledge to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will write his law on your heart and you will know what is right and you will know what is wrong and you will know what it means to obey Jesus and to follow him because the Holy Spirit will lead you in that way because it's no longer about all that law. The only question you ask yourself now is what does love require? That's it. What does love require of me? I'm in this situation. I'm not sure what to do. What would love have me do? What would the love of Christ have me do in this situation? That is so, so Beautiful, but for those of you longtime Christians in the room and you get hung up on your theologies and I thought I knew what this meant and I thought I, I thought I had a system of belief and I thought, you know, all this kind of stuff and you get really hung up on the idea of no, but I believe in free grace. It's not about my works. It, has, it cannot be about my works. My judgment cannot be about my works. And this is the point I want to get for you to get today. Put that up there. The grace that transforms is still free. Grace that transforms is still free. In fact, if grace doesn't transform, is it even grace? 
Has salvation come to your house, to your heart, if no transformation has even taken place? If your thought and your mind and everything about you is still gravitating toward everything in this life that is wicked, if everything about you gravitates toward selfishness, if everything about you is only about what matters to you and not how your loving choices or unloving choices affect those people around you, then has any transformation that we could call grace impacted you at all? Or did you just hear a beautiful, attractive little story and it interested you and you started just trying to get closer to that story, but you haven't really allowed the transforming power of the grace of God to enter your life? Hold your moral things up high and see how far that gets you. But when it comes to the way God will judge us, Yes, it's through the saving grace of Jesus Christ in our life. You cannot save yourself. But it's also through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our life. That what when God if God if Jesus has truly taken up residence in your life, how could you not be changed? How could you not be changed? Do you really, like when you look around the room, and hopefully you don't do too much looking around the room, you know, like we're not a comparing culture here. But if you look around, let's, let's spend some time comparing for a second. <clears throat> if you look around the room and you see somebody that you think is spiritually strong, you think, man, they just seem to be so close to Jesus and they have a beautiful prayer life and they're, man, it's like they, they just love to love people and it just seems like they've got this Jesus thing figured out, you know, that sort of thing. When you, when you look at that person do you really think that God gave them some sort of extra special salvation that he didn't give you? Do you think like, like they signed up for the, the Spirit Plus plan? <laughs> and you were just like, I'm, I'm going to skate in on the basic, right? <laughs> like that's not the way this, thing's, this thing works. When you truly give yourself over to Jesus Christ, and, and I say this as if it's easy, and promise, I promise you it's not. When you truly give yourself over to Jesus Christ, it is a constant exercise of actually doing that, giving yourself to Jesus. Because your selfish, sinful person just wants to hang on to as much as it can. And part of the Christian life is you constantly going, no, 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 this isn't mine. I'm giving it to you, Jesus. Whatever you need, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, whatever, I am yours. As Paul says, I am a slave of Christ. I, I, I submit myself to him as my Lord and my Savior, the master of my life. And that is easier said than done. We don't like that. We want to be the masters of our own destinies. We want to be in control of our lives. And that control is an illusion. You can grasp and fight for control, and it's an illusion. You know it's true. You know you're not in control of anything. But you want to feel like you're in control. And one of the most beautiful, basic things that you can do to allow the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to really take root in your life so that your actions and your love match what you say you believe is to just give yourself all to Jesus. Quit holding back.
quit holding back. Grace that transforms is still free. It's still a free, unmerited gift of God. But once you accept that gift, you cannot help but be changed by it. You cannot help but be changed by it. And I would say, if you haven't allowed yourself to be changed by it, did you really even accept it? Now, that may be harsh. Like, you're like, I didn't come to church for you to convince me that I don't love Jesus, right? That might sound harsh. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to deal with reality here, okay? And I think one of the best gifts that I could give you, because somebody gave it to me one day. Somebody absolutely gave this same gift to me one day. And they said, Jeff... Your life does not match up with the words that are coming out of your mouth. Your actions, your attitudes, your ideas about things, they do not match up with the Jesus that you say you follow. So something's off here. I'm not going to say that to you, but I want to challenge you this morning to say it to yourself. Would you just ask yourself this morning as we leave, like, I know what I think I believe about Jesus and about salvation and what and all you know the whole thing. But does my life actually match the person who I say I'm following? Like, do you know what you know what it means to follow Jesus? It means to follow Jesus. It means you've you've decided that guy is worth following, and I'm gonna be like that guy. And if you haven't started being like that guy, then I'm sorry, you're just not following him. And all we want, all we want as pastors and other leaders around this church and, you know, anybody, just good, good believers and followers of Jesus Christ here in this church, all we want is for all of us to truly follow him. And what I've found is that he is worth following. But do you guys realize that the pattern of life that Jesus set out for us, do you know how incredibly beautiful that is? How incredibly revolutionary that is. You, how many millions, millions of Christians uh, are, supposedly are in this country? I don't know the number, but it's a lot. It's a lot. What, half? Ha- at least half of, of this nation might call themselves Christian? That's, a, what, 150 million? Can you imagine what would happen if 150 million people actually started living like Jesus? Do you know how beautiful this nation would be? Like, off the charts. It would be a nation of peace. It would be a nation of love, of regard for each other, of of selflessness, of of forgiveness, of, of, of helping one another, like filling the gap in people's lives when they can't fill it for themselves. Like, an amazingly beautiful... You'd, like there would be no conversations in government about the, you know, whose plan for whatever, social welfare or social whatever is the best, even health care. There would be no conversations in the government about that because they would just look at the nation that they're in and go, yeah, the church seems to be taking care of all this stuff. These people who follow Jesus, like they're helping the poor. The poor, are, it's not a problem. They're helping the sick. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a major issue how they're going to pay for it because the church is just kind of stepping in. 
they're making it happen. We, we, can, we can argue about some other things, right? And they would, right? But how beautiful would it be if those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ stopped the rhetoric of just judging, 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 pointing out the wickedness of the world and instead began to adopt the life in Christ that we've been called to adopt. Began to really and truly follow Jesus the way we've been called to follow Jesus. This is where Paul starts his conversation for what it means to be in Christ and who's in Christ and what the family of God. He starts right here. Yes, the world is wicked, but that's not what this is about. What this is about is us. Are we actually following Jesus? The world will always be wicked. It will. It'll always be wicked. But how do we live in that world? How do we shine a light? Not, not a light on their wickedness, but a light on God. How do we shine a light on Jesus to draw them out of that sin and out of that wickedness? How do we do that? That's what's important here. Don't get lost in the weeds. If you, some of you are, have listened to talk radio so much that all you see is how jacked up and wicked this world is. You can't see anything else. You've filled your head with it. And I'm saying that's just the weeds. Don't get lost in the weeds. There is a beautiful world here. There's a beautiful kingdom here that you've been invited to be a part of. Let's be that kingdom to this world. Let's be that light to this world. And see if we don't, like just see, if we start following Jesus, if things don't begin to change around us. I guarantee you it will. I guarantee you it will. Let me pray this prayer that Paul prayed over church in Ephesians, the Ephesian people. I want to pray this over you too. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. God, I pray that that same prayer for living hope this morning. I pray that you would give us an increasing wisdom and a revealing of yourself. God, remind us of the hope that we have you. Uh, remind us of the riches that we have in you. Remind us of the power that you make available to us, God, and help us to step into that through the leading and the transforming of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to be what you've called us to be. God, give us a, a desire not just to go to church, not just to come and pay our penance and, 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 and have this sense that, uh, you know, if I, if I check box A, B, and C, then God will be happy with me. But no, 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 to actually get into life with you and truly follow you. Look at the example that you set through your son, Jesus Christ, of what true and beautiful humanity looks like and begin to aim at that. God, help us to really and truly follow you. God, there's so many areas of my own life where I know I'm weak. There's so many areas of my own life where I know my life does not match up with Jesus' life. But God, I want that, and I, and I know you want it for me, so I give you permission today as I give you permission every day. Transform me in whatever way you need to transform me. I want to be like you. I want to follow your son, Jesus. 
God, for those in the room that are looking at this faith uh, through the eyes of somebody that's investigating or somebody that's new to it, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just reach out to them right now. Let them know that faith in you is not about being perfect. It's just about giving your life to them or giving them giving their life to you and just following you and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you. God, it's not about the list of sins. It's just about staying close to you. So help us to do that. Help us to stay close. And when we wander, pull us back in quickly. We love you. I pray that you would ignite new faith in the hearts of people in this room this morning. For those that have maybe convinced themselves that there was faith when there's actually no evidence of that faith there, God, I pray that you would ignite new faith here this morning. A genuine faith. A faith that is not about or by the works or the, the good moral deeds of that person or whatever, but a faith that is genuine and wholehearted following after you that is proven by the transforming power of your Holy Spirit in their lives to where as time goes on, they can look back on their lives and go, I'm not perfect yet, but I'm also not where I used to be. A change has come to my life. Bring that change to all of our lives and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God is good, amen? Amen. Let's go live it this week. Everybody have a great week.